0: Welcome to Soloish, a Washington Post podcast about being unmarried, but far from alone. I'm your host, Lisa Bonos, and today we're chatting with Moira Weigel, author of the new book, Labor of Love, which takes readers on a tour of the history of dating from the early 1900s to today. And if you are lucky enough to be listening to this podcast today, Thursday, May 26th, Moira is speaking at Sixth and I Synagogue at 7 p.m. tonight. So jet over there and hear more of her in person. Welcome, Moira. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. I've been spending time with your book lately and I've really been enjoying it. Since the book is all about the invention of dating and how it's evolved to where we are today, let, let's start at the beginning there. What are some of the first signs of dates in American history?
1: Well, I always joke that the invention of dating happened twice, that it happened in 1896, Mm -hmm. which is the first time that we see the word used in print in the record and the historical records that I've searched and other historians have searched. And in that context, the word was being used to describe something that was thought to be a bit disreputable and in fact sort of verging on prostitution. Hmm which was a working-class woman meeting a man for a dinner or, you know, a movie. Mm-hmm. They called it the Nickelodeon then, some kind of entertainment. And the second invention of dating, I always joke, was in 1914, which is when, for the first time, the Ladies' Home Journal, a very proper rather stuffy very large circulation magazine uses the word for the first time to refer to a nice middle-class college girl going out with someone else from her college and doesn't feel a need to define it it's funny because they put it in scare quotes but don't define it the invention of dating takes place I think around the turn of the last century has everything to do with greater numbers of young people in general moving to cities Mm-hmm. Women working uh, working outside the home, taking on paid work in greater and greater numbers, and young people having these opportunities to mix that they had never really had in the past when courtship was more supervised. So that's the invention of dating, I think, in a nutshell.
0: That seems sort of even recent when you think about American history. And dating has changed a lot since you know, the turn of the 20th century. What are some sort of the biggest ways that you see maybe gender roles that were in place back then or traditions that began over 100 years ago still being in practice?
1: Well, one thing that's really interesting, and I think kind of surprising to someone who grew up in, say, the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, is that, well, I think we tend to assume now that it's, like, natural that a male partner should take the lead in pursuit.
0: Hmm.
1: Before the invention of dating, sort of before this custom of going out and meeting someone somewhere in public, developed when dating was more like, or rather, excuse me, not dating, when courtship took place along the more sort of Jane Austen model that we know from 19th century novels, it was really thought to be the woman's prerogative to invite someone, because a young woman and her mother would be hosting a suitor in their home, and, you know, when you think about it, you couldn't invite yourself to call on someone, that would be very rude. And uh, so one thing that was funny to me in my research was some of the advice manuals aimed at men from the mm. late uh, 19th century and early 20th century were all about how anxious the man would be about going to call on someone. And there was, I read this one book called Putnam's Handbook of Etiquette for Gentlemen, I think, that had a whole section devoted to, quote, the question of the hat, gloves, and stick, and how you're supposed to hold your hat and your gloves and your stick wow. while you're calling in a woman. But anyway, once we switched to this dating system where it's about going out into public, which had always been the men's world, Mm -hmm. spending money, which men then, as now, earned more of (laughs) and had more control over. It's sort of the ball switches. Please edit it so I say whatever the metaphor, (laughs) the correct (laughs) metaphor is, but it's like the ball enters the man's court, Mm -hmm. and this idea that a man should take the initiative in courtship becomes much more prominent, and it's really striking in these advice magazines from as late as 1905, 1906. You see young men writing in saying, oh, can I call on this woman even if she hasn't asked me? And the, hmm. you know, the advice columnist says, no, absolutely not. You Gosh, I wish I could remember. It's, I think, this one columnist who I believe was either for this Philadelphia paper, maybe it was also the Ladies' Home Journal, says you would do nothing but provoke her just displeasure in uh-huh. calling on her if you had not been asked. So I, I think some ideas like that that we tend to imagine, or I tended to imagine, Came from like the Stone Age or something? Yeah, are actually often more recent uh, hmm. than than we're used to thinking. There's certainly like chivalric romance traditions. Mm-hmm. You know, Romeo calling up to Juliet yeah. at the balcony. There are older models for male passion and male ardor, but the idea that the courtship transaction—you know, this series of interactions—that is that is supposed to, at least in theory—and that's another conversation—lead to marriage or some more long-term form of coupling that those need to be initiated by the man at every stage, that's a rather new idea.
0: Hmm. Seems to me that if women maybe have biologically less time to figure out who they're going to partner with, that society should afford them a little bit more agency in making those decisions. I mean, not to say that like women don't ask men out, they do, but it is more the exception than, than the rule.
1: I certainly agree with you that I want I want women to have more agency in every sphere of human endeavor in general. Yeah. Um I think that another thing that was sort of interesting is if you think about it like if you think of think of a Jane Austen novel and like what a big deal it is or like Middlemarch it's like this one guy comes to Middlemarch and it's like world changing for <laughs> the young ladies of Middlemarch. Mm-hmm. And then you think about a woman who is going out to work at Macy's in Brooklyn in 1910, and like lit, just how many men she would meet every single day. Hmm. You think about that sea change and how much more real agency she did have. She yeah. could go out on the street. She made money. And But what's interesting to me in a way is like, uh, I almost feel as if the calling system, the system that comes before dating, where a man goes to a woman's house uh, and sort of has to petition her parents to spend time with her, but in a funny way, that... It's like once that no longer exists, once those literal barriers of having to stand there waiting with your hat in your hands to see if this woman's mom will let you see her, uh, once those no longer exist, it's almost as if people have to invent them by playing hard to get, you know, that you can't respond to a text message too quickly or you have to pretend that you don't see it. Um, That in funny ways, I sometimes think that it's like we're trying to reinvent these barriers Hmm. that actually aren't materially as true anymore or as
0: necessary. So you give your phone over to your mom and have her screen all of your text messages? I mean, I probably <laughs> would have been better off.
1: <laughs> Don't think she didn't try.
0: Don't think she didn't try. In the book, you talk about this notion of, of dating feeling like work and being yes. like explicitly tied to the economy that the phrase, I'll pick you up at six, for example, came out of this nine-to-five workday, you know, which more or less right. doesn't exist anymore. I just wondered, what are other ways that Dating is is tied to the economy Well it's funny because I feel like
1: In a way this was the Intuition behind the whole book Was this feeling Mm. that it was so much work And I think that dating is tied To the economy I tend to think In three distinct ways And one is this rather the history of dating is And one is this really literal way That we just talked about Which is that it starts when you have women Going outside the home and earning at least a bit of money By themselves and having more freedom To meet and marry whom they choose And so the second way is the way you're alluding to where the patterns of how we work and also how we consume, which, you know, in the internet era of prosumption is like less and less distinct from work Mm -hmm. all the time anyway, Mm -hmm. that those things change over time. And so patterns of dating change. And it can be something as basic as like, there weren't drive-in movies before 50s. And then there are, you know, can be as basic as something like things to do Mm -hmm. that didn't exist before. Or it can be um, as abstract as the feeling that you might have when you're out on a dinner date with someone now that you like have to be checking your cell phone. Or you know, if you're a journalist, you have to be tweeting and seeing how your story is performing on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a very different sense of time yeah. than you would have if you punched out at five. Uh, and then the third way I tend to think about, which is perhaps the most abstract, is sort of how these economic notions shape how we feel or how we think we're supposed to manage our feelings I think so much of the language of dating is sort of unconsciously about economics you know we talk about friends with benefits and investing Mm -hmm. in a relationship hard to get hopefully no one says damaged goods anymore but we have um you know I'm on the market I'm off the market all these ways I mean that's even before I feel like some people sort of jokingly talk about optimizing their love lives or their return on investment sort of self consciously, but even unself-consciously, I think we think that way, we tend to think that way a lot. And I think the bottom line is that these concepts that come from the world of the market and the world of work start to shape how we relate to our feelings, um, you know, as well as shaping dating in these practical ways. Like, how do you meet someone? Where do you go? What do you do together?
0: How does that get reflected in our feelings? think about the
1: language of flexibility. I mean, think about the tyranny of chill
0: among a certain demographic
1: Mm -hmm. of daters right now and how, you know, the way people talk about hookup culture. I always think it's rather funny because, you know, I'm finishing up a PhD. I teach university undergrads, and I actually feel as if some of the hookup hysteria maybe has died down a bit in the past year or so. But you get these adult authority figures saying to young people, you have to be adaptable, you have to be flexible, you have to be mobile, always have them put out the door, be looking for the other option.
0: And Mm. then they look at
1: them and say, oh, you're not committing to relationships, you're sleeping around, what are you doing? (laughs) You know, it's like exactly the same set of values, and I always find that a bit funny, to be honest
0: interesting so if we are these sexual freelancers which i think is a a term you've used in the book right
1: yeah dating the original unpaid internship
0: (laughs) yeah um you You might you might get a free lunch (laughs) people are still are still getting married and settling down though so like how is that freelance notion tied to the steady relationship if you're like when is it just that Millennials are deciding, like, when I'm financially stable or when my career reaches a certain point. Like, then I will look to settle down. It's a really interesting question. And once again, I think it
1: shows how profoundly class and economics influence these things. Because I believe what we're seeing in America now is this rather dramatic skewing where um, privileged, college-educated, sort of middle-to-upper-income folks are deliberately you know, and there have been a lot of studies on this. Like there's a sociologist named Andrew Churlin who had a book out about this last year. There have been a number of sort of Pew and Gallup studies about this. But the upper middle, you know, the kind of kids I teach at Yale for the most part seem to still desire marriage at very high rates unmarried. Americans still say they want to get married. I think the most recent figure is 53%. Across class backgrounds, Americans still seem to desire marriage. In the upper middle to upper middle class, situations, people seem to be shifting. A lot of studies suggest young people are shifting towards this idea of the capstone marriage Mm -hmm. rather than the cornerstone marriage. So rather than getting married when you're 21, which is what my Irish Catholic parents did, and building a life together, marriage is something for when you finish grad school. You know, when you finish your medical school residency or your legal clerkship or your postdoc or whatever it is, um, have some career stability, know where you're going to be. Then, for working-class Americans, marriage is in decline, and across classes, also, marriage. People still want to get married, but marriage rates have pretty steadily declined since the 1950s and 1960s. So there is a discrepancy between sort of, like, stated desire and then what people are actually doing.
0: tries to learn from your book that the Washington Post is actually responsible for coining the term biological clock as it relates to women's fertility. First time it appeared was in a Richard Cohen story for the Metro section in 1978 with the headline, The Clock is Ticking for the Career Woman. Biological Time Clock Can Create Real Panic. And in the story, he goes on to describe sort of like this composite woman who's 27 to 35 years old and is just feeling this stress of wanting to have kids, but maybe not feeling the time is right. Or sometimes, and I quote from the story, horribly, there is no man in the horizon. What there is always, though, is a feeling that the clock is ticking. A decision will have to be made. A decision that will stick forever. You hear it wherever you go. Women all over are singing their own version of September song. Now Richard Cohen writes that he's gone around a busy bee of a reporter from woman to woman, the ones in the office and the ones I meet elsewhere. Isn't it interesting, I say, this business about the biological clock? How do you feel about it? The rest of the story goes on, and Richard is sort of channeling the collective voice of these women, of, you know, who are 27 to 35, who are feeling the time pressure to have kids, and there's no mention at all of men feeling this pressure. In fact, there's a line that feels very 1978. There was something about their situation that showed, more or less, that this is where liberation ends. This is where a woman is a woman, biologically, physiologically, uncontrovertibly different. Don't get me wrong, we are not talking about recognizing a difference and being glad that some of us are on the right side of it, the side of Charlie Chaplin and Pablo Picasso and all the other senior citizen fathers out there that heeds no clock. But there is something else here. Once you realize the difference, you also have to recognize that the difference produces advantages and handicaps. Little about it is simply neutral. This is important because there is now something in the air about women having won their fight for equality and something about how it was always harder to be a man anyway. But there are some things we never had to worry about, like the ticking of the biological clock. So I called Richard Cohen recently and asked if he remembered writing the story and what the circumstances of it were. And, you know, it was written 38 years ago. He didn't remember very much about it, he said. But... Um, he stood by it. He said that the you know he wouldn't have written it in quite the same way in uh, 2016 and he wouldn't be allowed to write it the same way. But Moira, let's talk for a minute about this notion that it really has been fed by the media that women have to be concerned with fertility, but that it's not as much of a problem for men.
1: I do think that it's because in a way, despite all the progress that women have made in the workplace and all kinds of spheres, our society still thinks that you know reproduction is a woman's problem and yeah. that what sort of happened I mean, look it's great that women work outside the home and that we have so many more professional opportunities than women a generation two three four generations ago might have had nonetheless i think there is this catch where it's like do we have it all or do we just have to yeah. do everything yeah. Um, and where you know if you look at what happened to the economy in the seventies in this moment of women's liberation Almost no families could afford to only have one partner working anymore. Yeah. Women had to start working outside the home, and there were all these new social pressures that that created, which I think were very much put on individual women and sort of treated as an individual problem, as opposed to this broader social problem, uh, where, you know, I now say, and I hate to talk about this in my book, but to me, the idea that we have a workforce that is more than half female in the United States, and that many corporations still think, offering egg freezing benefits so that you don't have to take time off from your career during your childbearing years, that that's a more realistic fix. Like an experimental time freezing procedure is a more realistic fix.
0: Than adapting the workplace.
1: Than like four months of paid leave, six months of paid leave and a slightly more flexible career ladder. I think that really tells you what you need to know about how deeply entrenched some of these assumptions are.
0: If you were to write an update of your book in 20 years, like what sort of chapter about right now do you think um, you'd be writing of something that's happening now that we'll come to look upon in a in a different way?
1: Yeah, that's a fascinating question. No one's ever asked me that. It's a great question. Um, I'm really interested in what, because I actually, again, for all this sort of pessimistic stuff, I actually think we're living in this really exciting moment. For sort of feminist activism and conversation, I'm really, I've been really excited. I mean, I feel like I and many Americans have gotten this total education about gender fluidity and gender nonconformity over the past maybe like five, you know, two to five years. Mm -hmm. If I were writing a chapter, because, you know, all the chapters are those one word themes, I wonder if it would be like fluid or mobile or Mm -hmm.
0: something. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Myra. Thank you. It was so much fun. Uh Thanks for joining us today, Moira. If you'd like to read more of her book, Labor of Love, you can find it wherever books are sold. She's also on Twitter, at Moira G. Weigel. And as always, if you have ideas for the Soloish podcast, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Lisa Bonos. This podcast is produced by Pamela Kirkland, and we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.